obesity, sexual health, diabetes, supporting men's health and patient care, building knowledge in men's health communities. Welcome back to the Men's Health Podcast. In today's episode, we'll be deep diving into one of the biggest global health burdens, obesity. The prevalence of obesity is increasing at an alarming rate, with 13% of adults in the world obese and 39% overweight. By 2050, foresight modelling indicates that 60% of adult men, 50% of adult women and 25% of all children under 16 could be obese. Now, excess body fat is one of the largest causes of death globally, dramatically increasing the risk of type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer and many other chronic diseases. In fact, up to 95% of type 2 diabetes is caused by excess body fat, 23% of heart disease and up to 41% of certain cancers. Obesity holds an enormous financial and economic impact as well. In fact, by 2035, the global economic burden of obesity is set to reach a staggering $4.3 trillion a year. So why are more and more people living with obesity and what can we do about it? To help answer these questions, we're joined by leading obesity researcher and director of Obesity UK, Professor Paul Gately. So first and foremost is I'm a professor of exercise and obesity at Leeds Beckett University where I run uh, or I co-direct the Institute for Obesity, um, which is really focused on trying to address obesity at a number of different levels, address the health inequalities, understand the wider systems around obesity, and then how do we help people with a lived experience of obesity sort of lose weight, keep the weight off. So that's the research end of the work that I do. I then run a company for the university, which is called More Life. Uh, so we're a subsidiary company of the university where we deliver health and wellness services across, across England and sometimes internationally as well. Um, and so we deliver primarily weight management services for people uh, who are facing obesity or suffering with obesity. And then I think my third hat I wear is I'm the chief exec of Obesity UK, which is a members-led charity with about 25,000 members who are on a daily basis sort of talking and supporting each other and um, giving people with obesity a, a voice, basically, is the primary goal of that organisation. Okay, and, and so maybe 15 or so years ago, um, obesity wasn't as popular of a research topic as it is now. So what initially made you interested in uh, studying obesity? Well, it was pure luck, basically. So, I mean, a long, long time ago, when I was 18 years old, I was, um, I was an athlete and I, I sort of wasn't very well. So I took the summer off um, and I went to America. Uh, I went to work on Camp America um and i ended up working at a weight loss camp for children um and you know i walked into a room of about 70 staff most of those staff weighed some in the region of about 25 stone i weighed nine stone uh, a skinny english long distance runner um and it was just a very weird environment to me but but i i learned you know a lot of how not to do it but i also learned a lot of how to do it and you know my philosophy has always been listening to people i work with you know they're really important. The children were really important. Their voice was really important. Not what I read in a textbook, but what, what I experienced with them and how I align that to the science, to the research. Um, and that's really what I've, what I've had a lifelong journey to do is, is help people with lived experience of obesity lead a better life. 
Okay, and, and as I'm sure we'll get into later, it's it's not necessarily an easy thing to do or not as easy as, as, as people uh, think in terms of treating uh, obesity and helping people with obesity. Um, but before we get into that, how do we actually define obesity? Is it a level of body fat accumulation beyond a certain threshold? Um, many people use the, the BMI, so the body mass index calculator, um, with a measure of 30 or above 30, uh, indicative of, of obesity. Is this a helpful way to, to define it? Yeah, so from a from a perspective of um, a very simple perspective, BMI is is a tool that is used, um, and we hear lots about well, BMI is not accurate, and the England rugby team, and so on and so forth. But I'm not trying to help the England rugby team. The England rugby team have got plenty of people looking after them. Uh, my job is to pe- for to help people that have got a lived experience of obesity, and a BMI is one of those indicators. Um, but equally, when, you know, at More Life um, or within our research, we'd ask the question, what's your goal? And weight loss isn't sometimes isn't always the goal. Sometimes the goal is I want to pick my kids up. Uh, I'm a, you know, I'm an older adult and I want to make sure that I live the rest of my life being able to play with my children and my grandchildren. So, so BMI is one tool that we might use that is a definition of obesity in the medical side of it. But actually, it's really important to know if they've got mental health issues. What's their social circumstances like? What's their friendships like? All of those pieces of information in our world of More Life and uh, Leeds Beckett and Obesity UK is they're what identify the individual. It's not a, a number on the scale. But, it, but from a definition perspective, in the medical world, in the science world, BMI is a tool that is valuable to the mix of um, helping people, but it's not the only tool. Okay, and, and should we consider obesity a serious health condition? So for me, what's critical about um, obesity and understanding obesity is it's very easy to go straight to the, the disease or the comorbidities of heart disease, cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancers, type 2 diabetes, and, and the list goes on. And if we look at our NHS, which is really under pressure at the moment, then you can see a very clear link between obesity, those physical health issues, and the cost to our NHS, and the lived experience of someone with living with cancer, living with heart disease, living with um, type 2 diabetes. So there's, there's those obvious direct physical health consequences. But to me as well, I mean, and thinking about different age groups. So when I'm talking to young people, they don't really think about cancer and heart disease and type 2 diabetes and so on and so forth. They're thinking about the fact when they go to school, they are they're struggling to sort of fit in with their peers. They are struggling to go to the shops and buy clothes. When they look on social media, they don't quite fit in. Um, they feel anxious and depressed in certain circumstances. They don't know what to do around eating. They feel completely out of the depth with regards to physical activity, exercise or sport. So that is a very, very different, you know, and, and that, that for me speaks to the real lived experience of different people. And so as well as the, the very clear medical things that most people talk about, actually to me, what's most relevant in, um, in understanding uh, people's lives and their quality of life and their healthy years rather than their unhealthy years is to say okay what is it you're facing what are those challenges of your life at the moment because because actually trying to engage a young person who's 13 around the around the fact that five years might be cut off the life because they might get a stroke 
is completely irrelevant. Whereas actually talking to them about the fact that how do we build up some build up some self esteem so you can be a bit more resilient when you go into your PE class at school. Now that becomes real currency that that young person wants to work with. So it's the quality of life for me is the critical thing that we would work to. And you know fundamentally, sort the quality of life bit out. The the physical health comorbidities will be sorted out. And and this is a bit. ironically the bit the health systems never really understood no thanks for that uh, answer paul and i think you raise a a really interesting point i think that the quality of life is certainly an outcome uh, in research which really is undervalued and underappreciated and i think as a scientific community we're probably guilty of ignoring quality of life relative to maybe more harder clinical endpoints like you know onset of uh, cardiovascular disease or mortality for example um, all of these, of course, within their respective rights are crucial, but some may be more important for one person with obesity than another, as you quite rightly say. Uh, and when we're looking at the impact, we need to consider the demographic of the individual. Again, you mentioned a child isn't going to be concerned about their heart disease risk when they're 80. Uh, they're more worried about other things happening in their life, whereas a 70 year old uh, may well be. And to help understand that the severity of, of, of the issue, um, we, we know obesity is, is common, but, but how, I mean, how prevalent is it? So, so I think um, about a third of our adults uh, suffer with obesity, about a third of our adults suffer with a weight problem, and then about a third of our adults have, are in the healthy weight range. Um, and so that that's really covers the statistics. And, you know, in terms of children, that, that's an increasingly uh, increasing, you know, the, the direction of travel of those lines are toward what the adults say. So it increases with age, basically. But the statistics are very similar. So about a third of people live with obesity, about a third of people have a weight problem. So two-thirds of our population have a weight that is unhealthy. Simple as that. Okay. So, so the, next, the, the, the real reason why is, well, we, you know, we, we as a species were never designed to live in the world we lived in. For hundreds of thousands of years, if not millions of years, we've been evolving at a very slow rate and our environment has changed in a matter of uh, a couple of hundred years um and and it's interesting i, I you know I, i've got a you know I, I i sort of caveat this with with i need to check the source but i was in a conversation a couple of months ago and somebody said to me do you know the average weight uh, of an adult 120 years ago was about of an adult male is about eight and a half stone now you would not, you don't, you know, you if you saw someone eight and a half stone as a male, you'd think they're really underweight. But that was the average weight 120 years ago. So our genes have not changed in that time, but our environment has dramatically changed. You know, our food system has become amazing at getting us food when we want it really cheaply. Okay, and so you, you know, the achievement there is incredible. But that that has come at a cost, um, and our our world of energy saving devices has increased dramatically. Um, that's come at a cost. So so, you know what we've got to find a way of is is our physiology matching our environment, and that's really tricky to do. Absolutely, the the human body is is wired in accordance with a food scarce environment, and and as you quite rightly mentioned, we've you know rapidly shifted from food scarcity to an overabundance of food which um, builds the, the necessary framework for obesity to develop. Um, and, and we've heard over the years, I guess, the, the standard advice in, in the Western world, which is typically, you know, eat less, move more. Is it fair to say we've maybe underappreciated the, the complexity uh, of obesity? I think, I think the, what we're starting to, or what I'd hope we're starting to realise is, 
our diet and our physical activity do influence our weight. That, that's, the energy balance equation is correct. It's not that the energy balance equation is incorrect. But, but in a sense, what we've, what we've lacked to appreciate over the last 20 or 30 years in our efforts to help people understand that is how complex people's lives are and how much control they have over these sort of things. So, you know, adults who are really struggling from a mental health perspective, the types of foods they might choose will be very different than if they were not suffering from mental health issues. Um, the, you know, somebody that's working 15 hours a day will have different dietary behaviors and different physical activity behaviors than someone that's working six hours a day. You know, I mean, fundamentally, those environmental factors, whatever they are, will then influence our diet and physical activity level and also sleep. I and mean, the other thing to mention here is sleep is absolutely critical and it's often overlooked. So sleep, diet and exercise are fundamentally critical. But our environment influences those three behaviors, if you like. Okay, and, and, and do you then think obesity is a well-understood condition in, in healthcare, you know, in, in the UK or globally? And if not, are there fundamental changes needed in, in, in how we actually approach and, and manage um, obesity? So I guess you've got to look at this at different levels. So, so in the, in the, we, we often, you know, we're, we're hearing at the moment, um, we're hearing at the moment all the challenges of our NHS. So our NHS is our health system, basically. And then within that, you've got all these different medical colleges, you've got GPs, you've got consultants, you've got hospitals. So you've got a really complex system and they're all trying to do their best to drive what's right for their local population. So you have NHS England that oversees all of this. And then you have these separate bodies uh, called integrated care uh, boards that are trying to coordinate care at a local level. So you and I, wherever we live, are getting the right care available to us, right hospitals, right GPs. So with it, as that filters down, what often happens is politics with a big P and a small P start to come into the mix. So, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, the politics of healthcare means we can't just keep putting lots of money into the healthcare system. But if you're a politician and you're confronted with somebody that's suffering with cancer and you have to look after them or someone that's suffering with obesity, you have to look after them. And you've only got enough money to spend on one person it's easier to create a narrative around someone suffering with cancer because everybody collectively will get behind that and you'll win political points. And I'm, and I'm making a real, I'm, this is a very extreme example. So I'm caveating that just to sort of say at every level, those value judgments that those professionals make is really difficult to do, but it's also one can see why action on for helping people suffer with obesity tends to play out much more at a political level than it does at a local level, because at the local level, the action is very poor and very limited. Whereas, you know, no one's going to argue with the fact that, you know, good quality cancer care is available. But I, and I wouldn't argue with that, but I would equally, I would argue, okay, we know that obesity leads to a variety of cancers. And we know that obesity will, will cause the NHS to be under pressure. So those politicians need to make more longer term decisions that impacts on the health system to enable the health system uh, people leading that bit to then make the right choices for now and for the future so we as a society can all benefit. You know, there's a lot of responsibility on their shoulders and it's really difficult and complicated, but fundamentally, you know, at the moment, the lens is not preventative enough. It's always, uh, it's always curing a sort of major problem like cancer, like heart disease and other things like that. So it's a really difficult thing to grapple with.
Absolutely. And a lot of the work we do is focusing on men's health issues that either independently or, or disproportionately affect men. Uh, and we have a lot of uh, endocrinologists and other men's health experts that are calling for a more structural and political intervention and policy to help tackle the issue. Many refer to it as levelling up, as we now have a women's health policy that recognises the gender-specific health needs and, and issues and management strategies, but we're yet to see a, a men's health strategy uh, be formed. So in, in terms of obesity, you mentioned a big political influence is needed, um, but how do we facilitate this collaborative approach you've been talking about as we need influence from people such as yourselves, from doctors, researchers and politicians on a local and national level? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you raise a really important point here. And I think what is critical to me is the point you're making about men's health is exactly the same point I'm making about obesity. And if we had somebody that was focused on type 2 diabetes, they'd be saying the same thing, or health inequalities, or, you know, you know, a variety of other things that we might want to put forward as, as needing prioritisation. So, so that, that's, you know, a critical piece of the, of the jigsaw. I think in terms of that, um, I've been really lucky to, I, I, was, um, I oversaw a project called Whole Systems Approaches to Obesity. So this was supported um, by Public Health England. It was a big five-year project working with local authorities and a variety of other agencies to really sort of say, how, how do we get those views brought together? So the collective views of men's health, of obesity, of women's health, of different ethnic groups, uh, the funders of these, the, the, the local politicians, how do we get all those people in a room? How do we build consensus? How do we build an action plan? And then how do we start to put that action plan into place? And, you know, the, what's called whole systems approaches is now seen as a real strong direction of travel. Um, the problem with, with all of these things is whole systems uh, approaches have got to replace uh, established systems you know you got to a place the sort of siloed mentality of we, we're a hospital and we do this and we're a GP practice and we do this or we're a men's health charity and we do this you've you've got to get those groups working together as you rightly point out and the whole systems approach has a process for doing that and it does it very effectively uh, but it's got to be there's got to be appetite from all angles um, and you know at the end of the day if you're a person that thinks your budget is going to be threatened by this new action then then your willingness to come to the table may be may be challenged a bit more so whole systems approach is definitely a an approach that's gathering momentum and being being recognized as a, a really strong direction of travel but there's some long entrenched you know views the, i mean the nhs has been going on for decades so we're not going to suddenly switch it and it's not just the nhs either it's nhs local government you know um the treasury you know there's all these different local and national stakeholders that are involved in obesity because it's so so expensive as an issue um but it but it's so underfunded as an issue and so and you know getting all those stakeholders together is is not an easy feat Absolutely. And, and as you quite rightly emphasise, um, it's, it's critically important to have that collaborative approach. And of course, so many different stakeholders are involved in, in, in the UK, at least. Um, and, and with obesity, it's also about changing the way we, we look at long term treatment or in investment um, or benefits of the investment. So the, the, the benefits of investing a lot of money now in tackling this condition will come to light 20 to 30 years down the line. Uh, when we see that fall in type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease and, and the number of patients presenting with a variety of comorbidities that are caused by obesity. Um, so it's almost um, 
making people realise who, who make the decisions that spending the money now will, will save a lot more later down the line. And, and that, that requires some real um, tough political decision-making because, you know, Rishi Sunak, as our current Prime Minister, um, I know we've had a few over last year, but uh, as our current Prime Minister, has to make a judgment that is going to see benefits in 20 or 30 years. Um, and it's interesting because whilst in the context of uh, addressing the deficit, you know, the, they are making decisions around the deficit. Um, and the question is, is, is that the right place to be? You know, and these are decisions that these political leaders need to make. I would argue that, as, as I think we're, we're jointly arguing, that if they invest in the beastie now, they will save money in the future. But Rishi Sunak will not be the person that gets the credit for that. And so you have to be a bold prime minister. Um, and with politics as they are at the moment, one can see how short termism is more important than long term approaches. Agreed. And, and hopefully the work you're doing at More Life and Obesity UK will continue to make a great uh, impact and, and progress on that front. But if we now focus on to childhood obesity, which I know is one of your specialisms and, uh, and interests, should we approach childhood obesity differently to how we approach adult obesity? So children, for example, have much less control over their food environment and a lot of their intake and, and lifestyle is, is driven by their parents. So how do we, how do we manage this? So I think the first thing is that um, there is, throughout our life, different stages require us, we'll, we'll have different influences that require us to behave differently. So the, the sort of premise of difference, even childhood versus adulthood, absolutely, there is a difference. But even during childhood, there's a difference. You know, what you do in zero to five will be different to what you do five to 11 versus 11 to 18 or 16, whichever way, way you want to look at childhood. So, so absolutely right that there are key differences and understanding the context of the lives of those children at those different levels is critical. So a 17-year-old, you're absolutely... Uh, you, a 17-year-old will have very different control over the life than a two-year-old. So at the two-year-old end of the spectrum, you're absolutely right that that, that two-year-old is very much influenced by, you know, decision-makings of parents or carers. But as, as the child grows, those things change. Um, and actually, you know, as someone that's got five children, what you realise as a parent, whether you're a parent or not, but one of the things you realise is kids become very good at manipulating you and they are, they, are very, they are very well manipulated by social media and advertising and so on and so forth. And, you know, as a, par as a parent that's manipulated on a daily basis, I can, uh, you know, I, 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 get, I get that. I get that there's a premise externally that parents control the environment and, you know, they have varying degrees of control and parents have varying degrees of competency to control. And so, so examples that we might give, if you've got a parent that's suffering with mental health issues or the family have just faced a bereavement, your ability to prioritise healthy living is much greatly reduced. Whereas if everything's going great, money's coming in, you know, kids are doing loads of sport, food's great, and everything's wonderful. If you live in that, you know, idyllic family home environment, then healthy lifestyle is more, much easier to do. So, so I'd say stages and, and the, the sort of, if you like, the stability of the ground that families are existing on is a critical feature. If it's more, if they're, if they're you know, if they're on shaky ground, life's more hard. If they're on really stable ground, life's easier. So this really does highlight the complexity of, of the issue. We have to 
adapt and tailor our strategies for childhood and adulthood obesity to kind of individual causes, which for some people could be socioeconomic and others it could be other reasons. So it's not as simple as uh, giving the parents or the children a personal trainer or a nutritionist. That's just not going to work. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, in terms of the work we do, um, we, we do, we have dietitians, psychologists, exercise experts, we have family therapists, we have doctors, we have consultants, we have a variety of different experts that work with our families. Um, because when we meet a family, their needs can be hugely variable, you know, and so we might, we, you know, we might meet a family and everything's perfect. But actually, you know, there's something in the family, which means that you know it's leading to this as a as a, an issue and we we tweak that we address it it's a tiny bit of education everyone's on the right path and away they go whereas we might meet other families where the social worker brings the young person and mum and dad are struggling there's a variety of financial issues there's a variety of other social issues there's other challenges going on in school and mental health of the child now you need a big wraparound care to help that child because the point i would make is if you don't do that then you store up long consequences. The system, the health system, the educational system and our economic system will pay, will pay a lot more money in the future because the, the complexity of that individual will spiral in its needs as life goes on. So, so if we don't, if we just, you know, if we just throw a sort of an exercise expert in there to a problem that's unrelated to exercise, we're going to spend a lot of money on something that won't work. So it's about understanding the needs of the family and then saying, right, what we think you need is this, this and this. And how are we going to get how we're going to work together to get that? And again, that's, a, you know, there's been a we are moving in this direction. But the health system to date has just tried to prescribe things to people rather than engage with those people. There are quite a few, and we're seeing more and more pop up, campaigns which try and normalise obesity. Um, and I know it's quite a controversial or contentious topic, but I would be interested to get your thoughts on these campaigns. Because for one, as you've quite rightly said before, there are children who uh, do not feel comfortable engaging in, in society or social circles due to fear of being judged um, or made fun of uh, because of their obesity so in those cases normalizing obesity may be beneficial um, and make that child feel more comfortable to engage yet on the other hand obesity it is quite a serious condition and is significantly associated with numerous um, serious health issues so how do we tackle and think about these campaigns so so if, if we the fundamental principle I've, I've tried to talk to is if you understand the needs of the child properly, then you provide a proper solution for them. Um, and, and that solution will meet their needs and meet their changing needs and will enable them collectively to achieve a, a, a positive outcome for everybody. And I think th this is the era we're in now. Now that is expensive, it's complicated, it needs a lot of work and the population size is pretty big. So 450,000 children in the UK are, are so big that if they were adults, they'd be immediately eligible for surgery. So that's a major, major scale problem. So, so the first component to this is 
the having a solution that um, meets the needs of people is absolutely the right way to go. And then, and what you do is you bring those individuals with you. What I think is there's a, a raft of people that have not had that sort of care and management. They've, they've been told by dietitians um, or nutritionists that their dietary intake has, has, has been inappropriate. Um, and the language might not have been as sensitive as it could have been, and the tone might not have been as sensitive. And then, and then we have, you know, fat jokes and fat shaming and all these other things going on. And so you've got, a, you've got tens of thousands of individuals that their lived experience over the last 30 or 40 years is that um, I'm not worthy. I, you know, the judgments and the stigma is profoundly problematic. So why, you know, why would those people not say, my experience of the system to date has been really problematic and I just want to, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Um, and, and that is for me why, why some of these campaigns has emerged because we've got a lot of disenfranchised people that we've done a really bad job with. Um, and so, so, so I think that's a critical element to make. I think what's also critical is we, we should be working, we should be addressing obesity in our society not challenging the obese person and i and i and you know when i say i'm using derogatory language there because in the world i exist in now i would always use people first language which says someone living with obesity so i don't want to describe someone as an obese person but the narrative is that this obese person needs to be fixed and you know that's not what we're, we're trying to achieve it's it's about working with that person with a lived experience because there might be an amazing actor or they might be you know amazing drama teacher or that you know there's so much more to them than just their weight so we so that's an important component to the story of this shift that we've got to we've got to work with people so that the outcome is not that they feel lazy greedy stupid ugly cheats lies which are the which are the words that are, that you know in the past have been labeled and, and whilst we've seen real steps in addressing weight stigma we are not there so the campaigns around raising awareness and challenging weight stigma are really critical where i would separate my view from this is that we should not just leave people with obesity with no means to address their weight because we know the physical consequences of that but we need to do it in the right way yeah that's a that's a really really good answer and definitely makes makes me think and hopefully others too um and i think maybe you you pointed this in your answer but the, the people who are so outraged about these campaigns should spend more time thinking why these campaigns exist uh, and why individuals feel a need to create these campaigns and feel more accepted and normalized in society so there's definitely a shift in mindset that's needed there. Well, on that one, Joe, I've, I've never met anybody who leads the perfectly healthy lifestyle. I've never met anybody that gets, gets eight hours sleep a night. I've never met anybody that's not drunk. I've never met anyone that's not speeding the car. I've never met anybody that's not, you know, uh, that's eating the five a day every single day for the whole life. So, so we have this real pious attitude around people with a lived experience of obesity. And we, you know, we do judge them because we, can, we observe something and that's so wrong because there's, you know, no one, I've never met anybody, including myself, that lives the most perfect, healthy lifestyle. Uh, if there is that person out there, I'd love to meet them. So, so you, know, uh, you know, let's not throw stones when we live in a glass house, basically. So I, it's all about how do we remove this mindset 
of um, remove this mindset of judgment and stigma to a more productive mindset of, okay, what are your needs and how might I be able to help you? And sometimes that may just, might, might be just shut up and <laughs> not say anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, a lot of these people who make these derogatory comments to people with uh, obesity, they may have had a more privileged uh, upbringing in terms of you know the, the money and the environment they're, they're brought up in. People uh, like Professor Alex Blakemore from Brunel University has dedicated a lot, a lot of her research into exploring some of the genetic predispositions um, to obesity um, and has spoken openly and, and really eloquently about her own uh, experiences of this. Um, and also Professor Stephen Bloom from, from Imperial College London, who's done a lot of research into the role of different hormones um, in, in, in obesity and, and how, uh, for example, uh, some people who are obese have a worse satiety response than individuals who are not obese despite con consuming the same uh, calorie content meal. Um, so there are genetic predispositions and, and factors that increase one's vulnerability uh, to developing obesity. Absolutely. We've seen a lot of new data come out from some of the promising pharmacotherapies of semaglutide and tazepatide, which are the glucagon-like peptide 1 agonists, which increase the levels of, of glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, um, in the body, which is responsible for numerous different things, such as controlling motivation around food, but also controlling your, your satiety response to food itself. Um, these are also now being given uh, concomitantly with different NHS-funded programs uh, for, for weight loss and lifestyle. And what role do you see these pharmacotherapies having in the overall obesity management equation? So again, where I'd start is, if you think about what I've been talking about, is people have different needs. Um, and, and so as, as a team of people working with people with a lived experience of obesity, the more tools that are effective that you have in your toolkit the more likely you are to be successful. So, so in our toolkit is diet, exercise, psychology, you know, and those have been, those are, are the mainstay and have been the mainstay and they are effective. We've also, we used to have some drugs, but they were problematic, so they were taken off. And we've, for a period of time, have not really had any pharmaceutical agents that are helpful in the toolkit for, for helping people with lived experience of obesity. Bariatric surgery has been as well part of that toolkit. So there's this, this toolkit that we have. Um, and for me, all that's happening is with the new uh, pharmacological agents that are coming onto the market, we've got more tools. And as we look at a person, we say, right, what are the, what are, what's, the, what's your lived experience? What are the challenges? We can start to use those tools in a more, much more effective way. Um, and so for me, that's, the, that, that's all they are. They're a tool in the toolkit and they are effective. The evidence shows they're effective. Um, I think caution is that what the evidence shows is that once people come off these meds, that they gain weight back. So, so you know, that's why the, the lifestyle intervention and maybe, and I would argue, a lot more psychological support is helpful because getting the weight off and then maintaining the weight is, is really critical and hard to do. So, you know, obviously what we'd want if people can lead a healthier lifestyle for the whole of their life, that's the goal that we want. We don't want people on, on lifelong medication, you know, because again, that will just cost the NHS a lot of money. We'll still save money, but actually I would argue there's much more effective ways to do it if we look at a toolkit approach. So if we just see bariatric surgery as the only solution, we fail the system. If we look at meds as the only system, we fail. If we look at 
exercise and diet is the only tool will fail. Whereas we look at them as part of our toolkit, we are much more likely to help people with lived experience because their needs are varied. Yeah, and that actually brings us nicely onto your work uh, in Obesity UK and also for More Life. Um, so it would be great if you could actually tell us more about what you're doing with those organisations. Yeah, so so Obesity UK is a, is an organisation that was uh, formed, you know, probably about 12 years ago now, um, really to try and support people with a lived experience of obesity, to give them a voice. Because at that time, um, obesity was done to these people. You know, the, the sort of treatment was done to these people. Everything was done to them. They weren't active participants in their healthcare journey, in the policy making, and so on and so forth. And so over the last decade, what we've been working hard to do is to, is to give people with a lived experience of obesity a voice. But equally, we, we've created a lot of forums where they can talk and interact and get support and help each other you know, as a community, and we know community is a vital source because a lot of people have been stigmatized most of their life. And so they've been actively pushed away from community and society. So providing a vehicle for that community to support each other, to meet up, to care, to be there as friends and supporters is has been absolutely critical and has been, you know, a lifeline for many thousands of people. In addition to that, uh, More Life is a subsidiary company of Leeds Beckett University. And what we've been trying to do is trying to say, OK, we've got lots of expertise in research and there's a lot of unanswered research questions. So let's do the research, but let's also deliver the services because, you know, we know what to do and we're doing it really well. But if we can year on year improve our progress through research, then we're more likely to deliver much more effective services and fundamentally more likely to de deliver much more efficient services because as I've tried to say throughout this, you know, if if we use the wrong tools for the problem, then we spent money with the wrong, with not getting the outcome we desire. And we, we all want our healthcare system to be more efficient. And so what we've been doing at Leeds Beckett and at More Life is trying to sort of marry up really good practice-based evidence with really good practice um, out there in, in working in communities across the UK to help people lose weight and keep that weight off and variety, using a variety of tools to do that, be they digital, pharmacotherapy or psychological. You know, we have different pathways that match up the different needs of those different people. Yeah, thank you, uh, Professor Gately. Um, you know, and I think one of the key takeaway messages from, from this episode is that uh, obesity isn't always, or indeed a lot of the time, it's, it's not a choice. Yeah, so, so absolutely. It's so that eating episode, people have a choice, but actually there's environmental factors which will influence that on a day-by-day -day basis. And the environment we exist in also influences that. So there's multiple layers of choice. Um, you know, and, and as I've tried to explain, if you're in very difficult, you know, uh, shifting sands is your environment, then your choices are limited. Um, you know, one of, one of the interesting things about COVID was a massive increase in, in levels of obesity um, in our children. But what we also saw was in ch children from more deprived communities, that rate of increase was much faster. Well, why is that? Because their ability to be out, their ability to be exposed to healthy food via school was limited. So it's not surprising. Now, that wasn't a choice for those families. We were all cooped up, but they, had, they were cooped up in smaller environments with less availability of healthy food and physical activity. Yeah, and again, I think that highlights the, the complexity and multifactorial nature of, of obesity. Um, and 
I think we just have time for, for, for one final question for today. Uh, and, and that is, if you had an unlimited research budget, uh, what question would you want to answer? So my, the primary would be really try, trying to marry up those characteristics with treatment options. So we, have learned, we are learning a lot, but we need to learn a lot more. Um, and so it's how do we match the needs of people to the tools that I've talked about. That, for me, is one of the big questions we're still grappling with. Professor Gately, thank you so much for joining the Men's Health Podcast. It's been a really fascinating discussion, and I'm sure lots of our listeners will, will enjoy it too. Thank you. No, thank you. So that's all for today. And thank you again to Professor Paul Gately for joining us here on the Men's Health Podcast. Do check out our other episodes with some of the leading experts in men's health, and you can visit www.trted.org. Mental health. Obesity. Sexual health. Diabetes. Supporting men's health and patient care. Building knowledge in men's health communities. communities.